at the school where I teach. I have a year seven. He's a lad who's only one that I very recently feel I can identify with. Um, He's a boy who, quite frankly, he struggles with life. And to be honest, he finds life, and particularly school, uh, really hard going. And at many times, it's just very confusing for him. And up until now, his coping strategy has been, when faced with a task he doesn't understand, is to um, leave the room. Um, He just walks away from it. Unfortunately for him, that results in uh, two things. One, he gets into a lot of trouble, because you can't just leave the room at school, and uh, without permission. And secondly, he's left behind still the tasks to do. It's still there. It still needs to be done. And uh, I identify with him because, uh, quite frankly, I've known I had this passage to preach on. Um, I've read it several times, but it has left me rather bewildered. Um, And my coping strategy has been quite similar to Jack's. I've just kept walking away. And I have been avoiding this sermon for weeks. um, Because it's it's not straightforward. And, And that surprised me, I have to admit, because... It's not as if I don't know the passage. I've known this story, these stories, these plagues, since I was really small. But I've known them as a bit of a list, really. They're just the things that God did to, to, you know, it's just bang, bang, bang. It was the list of the things that God did. Um, But when I looked more closely at the specifics, it was all a bit much. It it was rather overwhelming, and it was, quite frankly, easier to pretend it... uh, Uh, It was a task I didn't need to do. Uh, But just like Jack, I've had to wrestle with this. And and like Jack, actually, which is really positive, we found a way forward. So I promise I won't suddenly walk away, um, even though I have been inclined to. So confession over. Um, What do we have here in Exodus 9? Well, in musical terms, it's a continuation of this build-up of a great crescendo with each plague wrought upon the Egyptians, isolating and increasing the devastation. Thus far, on recent Sundays, we've looked at the plague of blood, where the lifeblood of Egypt, the water of the Nile, was transformed. The plague of frogs, so numerous, the land of Egypt reeked of them. And the plague of gnats, something the court magicians, for the first time, could not replicate. See, the crescendo is starting to build. For the first time, the court magicians couldn't do the stuff previously. It's made a point of it. And uh, following this was the plague of flies. Again, this marks the first time where the part of land within Egypt called Goshen, where the Israelites lived, that was not to be affected. The Israelites, where they lived would be okay. There was to be a clear distinction between God's people and Egypt. But what of this chapter 9 that we have before us? What beauties lie within? A plague on the livestock, a plague of boils, and a plague of hail. What a delightful combination. I'll lay out my summary of it all. Of all three found within this chapter. Now, I do apologise for those of you who find this a little bit too simplistic, um, but quite frankly, it's what my brain can cope with, and it helps me remember stuff. So for those of you who find yourselves in a similar boat to me, I hope this is of use. It's a silly little rhyme, um, 
So perhaps if somebody asks you later what the sermon on was on, you might vaguely be able to remember at least this. The battle of will, so purpose fulfill. The battle of will, so purpose fulfill. Let me explain that a little more. Chapter 9 begins with two entrenched sides, firmly in deadlock, each side staunchly maintaining their position. Moses wants the release of the Israelite slaves. Pharaoh refuses. There's been a breakdown in trust, if there was any, with Pharaoh promising to let the people go after plague four and then not honouring that pledge. Things are to be ramped up. A plague is predicted to fall upon a whole host of beasts of the fields. Horses, sheep, 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 goats, cattle, even camels. But for the second time, a distinction is made between the experience of the people of Egypt and the Israelites. God will show his power, control, and authority that David's been reminding us of. Uh, it will be so very clear. And uh, this time, though, we have a time frame also being offered. Verse 5. The Lord this time set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. Now, in chapter 8, verse 10, Pharaoh has tried controlling things and controlling the timeline on how things happen. He says, tomorrow. He tries to dictate terms. The tables now, though, are most definitely turned, and it's Pharaoh who's given the chance to alter his course. God actually does here offer a way out, a window of opportunity that only a fool would ignore. Let me say at this point something that I found quite useful when I was doing my research on this was that we're in the sort of the realm of the dramatic story and the use of the word all in verse 6, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, shouldn't really be overpressed. There would still be animals left so they could be afflicted by the later hail. Just as some uh, later, just as later, some crops would remain so that um, after the hail, so they could be further devastated by locusts. In this land of the dramatic story, it would be inappropriate in a world to ask, says Richard Coggins, where did Pharaoh get those horses from to chase the Israelites? Weren't they all killed? So what we've got here, the point is not mathematical, but rather poetical. So that you get a picture of Pharaoh, this man being painted as one who has taken leave of his senses. In the Hebrew, uh, a heart is not necessarily a reference to emotions, as we today might suppose, but actually to the intellect, to the mind, to the rational decision-making. Pharaoh is arrogant enough to pit himself against God himself. Here is the battle of wills, Pharaoh against the Lord Almighty, and the former insisting on holding on to the delusional belief that he can frustrate God's will. In verse 7, he sends out men to investigate what has happened, and sure enough, it was just as was promised. The animals of the Egyptians have suffered devastation, whilst none of the Israelites have been so afflicted. And yet, being armed with this knowledge, 
with it staring him in the face, he would not let the people go. It makes no sense. It it simply isn't rational. For we see in this chapter for the first time plagues that directly affect the persons and pockets of the Egyptians. Before, the plagues had been a, a mighty inconvenience. Now they were looking at a threat to their way of life, to their economy. And yet it makes no difference to Pharaoh. He was, in fact, all the more obdurate. The next plague is the plague of boils. Here Moses dramatically heaps further pressure on Pharaoh. The picture is perhaps deliberately comic, and it was certainly, I feel, theatrical. We have a scene far from the usual courtly protocol of Moses effectively throwing soot into the air from a conveniently placed kiln, And he's doing this all in the presence of Pharaoh. It's here that it's initiated. He can be, that's Pharaoh, can be in no doubt of where this power derives. Moses is making clear something severe is coming. Not from him, but from heaven, the direction the ashes are thrown. Again, Coggin suggests there is a sense of the glee of the oppressed at the suffering of their oppressors. Previously, it was the pocket that was hurt, the livestock that has keeled over. But now the very health of the Egyptians is impaired by dreadful, horrible boils, which note in verse 11 meant that the magicians, who we've seen in the past being so confident, so cocky, so sure of themselves that they can do this, well, now they're not even rocking up. Now they can't even turn up in public. They're at least housebound, uh, if not possibly bedridden. And there's nothing to suppose that Pharaoh himself was not afflicted in the same way. And then we have something in verse 12 which is subtly quite different. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not listen. Previously, we have seen Pharaoh being obstinate and God saying he will harden his heart well now he does the first four plagues had been warnings and the fifth pharaoh had been really given the opportunity to change but now God does as he promised and hardens pharaoh's heart now I have to admit I have struggled with this phrase it has thrown up for me all sorts of of things free will, benevolence of God, and so on. But I have come to see this phrase rather differently. We've all seen that child who's refused to do something that if they just rationally thought about it, it would be of benefit to them if they just did as they'd been asked. But instead, they scream, they stamp their feet, and they even writhe around on the floor. They just won't hear what's good for them. The parent loves the child, and that love sometimes needs to be expressed in a way that the child must learn for themselves. I remember one child I taught, this is years ago, but even though he was nine years old, he behaved more like a two-year-old. He literally lay on the floor in the classroom, face down, doing this, screaming his head off. And it was 
It was almost comical at how idiotic it was, to the point where those around him were looking and questioning what he was doing. What I did was I, I stepped over him and I walked away. I didn't care for him any less. In fact, I you know, still loved this child in my class. But he needed to learn he was not right. He needed to stew in his own juice a little bit. Sometimes a child insists by their behaviour they must learn the hard way, and so we have it here with Pharaoh. Alan Cole writes, God hardens those who harden themselves. If that's what you want, Pharaoh, okay. If this is the only way you're going to learn, all right, this could have been avoided. You've had your chance, upon chance, but fine. And so Plague 7 begins rather differently. There's been a shift here. There's been that real breakdown in negotiations after 4, deadlock persisting through 5 and 6, and now at Pharaoh's insistence, God's intervention is really going to kick in. God is going to spell it out. The victor on the battle of wills is to become all too clear, as if it hadn't been already. So whilst in verse 13 we have the uh, usual demand of let my people go, there is now increased threat. Verse 14. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Verse 16 makes clear that Pharaoh is only alive because God has allowed it. He could quite as easily simply wipe him and his people off the face of the earth, just like that. It is only by the grace of God that he has remained. Verse 16 uses the phrase, but I have raised you up. Well, no, this isn't some elevation of power or positive affirming, but rather, I have spared you. Alan Cole makes an interesting point. He argues that the plagues thus far have come in mercy rather than judgment. They've been, in effect, sort of wake-up calls, opportunities to repent. God has been patient and put up with his stubbornness. But Pharaoh insists on this path. Verse 17, you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. He still exalts himself, does Pharaoh, and arrogantly claims equality with God by his willfulness and obstructionist behavior. The word being used here is an unusual form and also gives meanings apparently, like uh, piling up a siege mound, just as they do around a castle, sort of a, a protective barrier around. It's a graphic image of building that protective barrier between himself and God. He will not let God penetrate. And so, an unparalleled hailstorm is promised. But yet again, God gives a heads-up warning. Believe and obey, and you shall not be ruined. Verse 19, give an order now 
to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, and they will not die. God, despite everything, promises made and broken, willful exalting of the self in opposition to God, God offers good news. There is a way out. Some Egyptians, noticeably, listen and do obey. And they are spared. And once again, the Israelites remain untouched by the devastation of the unprecedented force and the magnitude of the hail. Then in verse 27, we have something new. Pharaoh, for the first time, confesses that he and his people have sinned. He acknowledges God and capitulates. But this is not the voice of a truly penitent man. It is not a contrite heart, but the terminology of the law courts. That's what's being used here. We are guilty, Pharaoh is saying. The Lord is right. He is exacting justice. Thunder was thought of being a symbolic of God's voice. And Pharaoh recognizes that God is speaking in judgment and he wants it to stop. Pharaoh is saying what needs to be said without sincerity. Apart from, of course, that he wants the hell to stop. But I know that, you can see in verse 30 that Moses is pretty wise to it. But I know, says Moses, that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. It does make me wonder, why then does God, sorry, why then does Moses grant the request? Why does he go out and spread his hands out? If he knows that Pharaoh in his heart has not really changed, why does he go out and spread his hands out to the Lord so that the thunder and the hail stop? He does it, I believe, so that Pharaoh will be without excuse. Romans 1 verse 20 reads, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I didn't know. Pharaoh cannot say he didn't know. Oh, I haven't seen God at work. Pharaoh cannot say he hasn't seen God at work. As this goes on, Pharaoh can be left in no doubt. God has gone out of his way to be transparent. He and he alone is sovereign. And Pharaoh is no match. And yet, doesn't it just break your heart to see what Pharaoh does next? He sees that all is calm now, all is tranquil, all has stopped. And once again, he sins, digs his heels in, builds up the figurative siege mound, and his heart, his will, is set against God. He will not let the people go. When will this man learn? He cannot win this battle of will. Do you remember my silly little rhyme? Obviously, I failed if you have. The, uh, the battle of will, so purpose fulfill. Pharaoh has shown us in this chapter the futility of arguing with God. All too often, we try to negotiate with God. We try to manipulate him to conform to our will. We kid ourselves that we know best for our lives. Doesn't this passage show all too clearly how prone we are to deluding ourselves into thinking we know better. 
I think it's all too easy to say, Pharaoh, what an idiot. What an absolute idiot. To keep being so stubborn. Surely it's obvious what he should do. But isn't that arrogant of us to ignore that we can be just as guilty? Like Pharaoh, we can put a protective barrier around ourselves. We can be stubborn. We don't want to let God penetrate in our lives. Certainly not in that bit. That's for us to do as as we want to. Sometimes we might even hear ourselves use what sounds like all the right words, singing all the right songs. But our heart's not in it. Our heart's not truly contrite. And yet there is good news. Over and over again, God shows mercy to Pharaoh. He gives him chance after chance, and so also he does with us. God never gave up on his people. From exodus to exile, he never stopped loving them, even when they disobeyed. He came himself in Jesus Christ, the ultimate good news of a second chance, that we might escape what we deserve. Romans 9 verse 14 reads, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And thank God that is so. We have seen all that God has done and is doing. We have no excuse but to give him all the honour. The battle of will, so purpose fulfil. Pharaoh had to learn the hard way that the earth is the Lord's. Why? And this is the purpose fulfil bit. Verse 16 tells us that God has spared Pharaoh so that God might show his power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wanted Pharaoh to know him, to know what he and no other could do. And he wanted, through this, to be made known to others. Today, here and now, God wants you to know him. No siege mounds that keep God out, He wants you to know him, know what he has done, know what he can do in your life, and also to make him known. Now that could be through a shoebox, or through the life and work of Brighton Road here. Your neighbour or your workmates, our purpose is to make him known. Our challenge this morning through my little daft ditty, the battle of will, so purpose fulfill, is that we might afresh, or perhaps for the first time, say, Lord, you are Lord. I surrender to your will. I will not stubbornly keep on insisting that I know better and should do things my way. No, Lord, have your way in my life. Have your way in this church. My purpose, our purpose, is to know you. 
and make you known. Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that we have not always followed you. We've thought we can do things under our own steam, or perhaps like a petulant child, known better and try to negotiate. We acknowledge now that you are our Lord and Saviour, that you love us and show us mercy, and offer us a chance anew to draw closer to you and acknowledge you as king in our lives, wherever that may take us. In your name we pray. Amen. So let's stand to sing our final hymn so that we can affirm God's rule upon our lives. It's number 1404, King of Kings, Majesty. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>